Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. My name is Chris Rawl. I have a website. It is actually my name. It is chrisrawl.com. You can subscribe to my newsletter there. It is very easy to do. You can read any essays that I've written. They are located there. You can listen to any podcast. They are also located there. We are officially into August, which means football is on the horizon. I cannot describe how excited I am. My heart is beating faster. My loins are stirring. I'm over the moon for what the next month will hold as soon as we get to the end of it. So buckle up and let's get into today's show because there's not a lot of current things to talk about. I mentioned we're kind of sitting looking at our watches for August 27th in Nebraska Northwestern battling away on Irish soil. Today I want to get a little bit more philosophical and talk about the known and the unknown. The known and the unknown is the subject of today's show. These two things in unison, uh, the ways that both play a role in our lives, what we kind of lust after or search after, and how I believe these two things kind of work in unison to create really profound experiences within the context of life. Now, I will tell you out of the gate, in many ways, I am a creature of habit. It's just a quirk or a whatever you want to call it of my personality. Um, I crave the knowable in many aspects of my life. This goes back to when I was young. This transitions into present day where each day there's a lot of things that I do that I go, I, I want to do this in this specific way. It's breakfast time, you know, I want a, an RX bar and a banana and a multivitamin and a cup of coffee and I'm good to go. I can have that every day. Absolutely. I'm great. I'm feeling good. It makes me sound like a serial killer. I know I can assure you I've only killed a couple people, nothing that would allow me to be called a serial killer, but there's a bunch of other things, daily stretching, daily exercises, uh, for golf, for other reasons, meditation, when it's sports season, check the gambling lines incessantly. First thing I do in the morning, wake up. Okay. Do this. Uh, carving out time every day to read, whether that's about sports, whether that's novels, poetry, Right now, it's all three. There's a lot of things that go into every day where I go, I know these things because they've been a part of my life for a long time. I want them to be a part of my life, and I crave having those. And if one or some of them are gone, I feel kind of uh, unmoored is probably a good way of putting it. And I like to get back into that familiar framework of a day. So right now, it's the start of August. It's an interesting time of the calendar for me because July and August represent the two months of the year where a big portion of my life, which is checking gambling lines, gambling, watching sports, that's just out the window because there's nothing going on that I care about. And so with no sports on, I have a, a lot of time that I can kind of dedicate to other areas in whatever way that I choose. That's been different for probably every single year, it just kind of depends where I'm at in my current state of life. This year, this last month, July and into August, it's just meant Okay, additional investment into your own golf career, just playing golf. I can play 36 holes. I can add a bunch of practice time on. I can, you know, take something that already is a foundational piece that I'm dedicating a lot of time towards and ramp that up even more. That's just the, what I've chosen to do over the last month. It's been that. It's been reading more. It's been being a little bit more social as far as life is concerned. Those are the things. Now, golf is the one that I want to concentrate on first and foremost as we branch out this conversation because golf is it's an investment and a battle 
with the unknown. I would credit this game with probably being the biggest window into how I feel and experience unknowable aspects of life, which has been really revelatory this almost a decade-long journey of just, okay, this is not always a negative. Uh, And in fact, in many ways, this is a huge positive to have be a part of your life. Um, Golf, I've never played anything like it. I don't say that as hyperbole. There are so many different ways that this sport is unparalleled, not just as a sport, but as a life experience. I know some of you will hear that, especially people who do not play golf or invest in it at all. They'll go, you sound like a shithead, and what are you talking about? I can assure you this is true. Had this conversation many times with people who golf all the time, and they all agree, yes, this is a very unique and unparalleled life experience. There's just weird stuff that goes on within this game that you cannot explain. Uh, The amount of people who just completely fabricate things that they do on the golf course, whether that's individual shots or especially with their scores, it's astounding. I'll never be able to get over to it. How many different times people who I know to be so bad at golf will come up and say, oh, yeah, I shot a 38 the other day. Or, yeah, oh, you know, I played over at Timpanogos and I shot a 78 the other day. And I'm sitting there with eyes kind of glazing over, unsure how to respond, going, you couldn't shoot. If I actually tracked your score, you could not shoot 150, and I'm not exaggerating. There's no other parallel like that where so many people, and I'm talking the vast majority of people, without fail, when they know that I golf and golf religiously, I go, oh, yeah, I did this the other day. I shot. I went out with my buddies and shot a 41. I go, no, you didn't. I don't even need to see you play. I already know you didn't. Just stop. Everybody stop. Just telling me that you have a nine-hole score tells me all I need to know. Let's start there. But there's a bunch of things that I've noticed over the course of time that are really unique that I don't know why they occur, but just the way that people's brains are triggered by the sport, they just push them down this path. A lot of people, they just don't want to putt in. I'm talking bad people. They'll putt it five feet by the hole and just grab the ball and mark it down as a par on the card. Very strange if you know that the hardest part of golf is five feet and in. (laughs) Take your mulligan here. Take your mulligan there. Don't count on the scorecard. Don't talk about it. Just an unwillingness to count hazard drops. There's so many different things. I could record an entire show that's strictly about the way that people want to be good at golf, but are not good at golf. And yet they go around saying that they are good. It's very strange, but I think it ties into what is, what was at first uh, something that almost broke my brain and in time has come to be probably the most addictive quality of the game. It's just the mental fortitude required by golf is unlike anything that I have experienced. It really is. Uh, There's just so many different ways it comes at you. And if you're not prepared, you're just a a buoy afloat on the sea and you get cast out in the middle of the Atlantic ocean. You go, what, how did I get here? What? I I don't know. You know, I've told the story about my first tournament, but just the humiliation that occurs on the golf cart It it just, you can't explain it. There's no other parallel in life where you would be doing something that you know you are very, very, very bad at. And you do it very poorly, even more poorly than you thought you would because it's inevitable. And instead of just being like, "Uh, you know what, I'm just kind of not good at this thing. Maybe I'll try to get better. Maybe I won't, but I'm not really going to sit here and stew on it for a month at a time. Golf is the opposite. No matter what you do, it's just you sit and you think and you're humiliated and you think over and over. I wrote a newsletter actually probably a couple months ago when I was talking about the British Open. 
And I was thinking about that component. I was writing about Tiger Woods. And what I came up with was just golf is a four-hour battle inside the most claustrophobic small room of your mind. I think it's a very good description of the game itself because you can't really explain it. You can only explain it to yourself when you're locked inside the room. You're just like, I don't know why I'm feeling the way that I feel. This is very strange, you know? So early on, golf freaked me out way bad with this unknowable portion because I'm in all these situations, especially mentally, that I had no parallel in my life. I go, I've never, I've never felt this way. I've never thought this way. I don't get it. Now, it's kind of a, a gift. The game offered areas that I could know and understand early on. The biggest one for me was repetition and practicing short game, chips and putts on practice screens. All my friends, they go, you know, you can shave off a bunch of strokes. You just got to get better in these areas. Let's start there. Work our way backwards. I'd go over and I'd put earbuds in and I'd chip for hours and I'd putt for hours. And still to this day, it's those activities hold an incredible amount of lure for me. Just putting some pods in. I can listen to a podcast. I can listen to some music. I can listen to meditation, whatever I want. But I just go and I breathe and I chip and I chip and I chip or I putt and I putt and I putt. And that noble component was really addictive to me. A person who came to the table with that personality of, you know, I like things that I can do habitually that I know that I like. And suddenly I'm hitting five foot putts, five foot putt, and I'm going, kind of like this. And now I'm getting better at it. Oh, and this is something that I really am starting to understand and kind of crave. And within that experience, you know, it's about, it's about trying to take on a knowable situation that is a chip or a putt under pressure that always getting different chips and putts on every course that you play. But you want to take that and make it feel benign. Like I've been there before. Like it's something just, just that I, I see in my sleep that I do every single day over and over. And so, oh, I got this five footer down a hill. Okay, I've practiced this a million times. That's kind of the concept behind that simple repetitive practice that forms the base of a lot of what makes you a good golfer. Now, the next step and why golf is great is because you can't know everything. And this is where a distinct separation occurs. Some people get freaked out and hate this. Strangely enough, what I have found is this is the part that was a huge draw and lure for me. Probably because it represented something that I have struggled with at various points. Just, ah, I don't, I don't like that unknowable situation. I'd rather be in the known. And it was just kind of cast yourself out in this ocean and see what you can figure out about yourself and figure it out, out about your game. Very uh, revelatory experience within uh, that understanding, you know. It's different than just, it's different than life because you can get, you can get a lot of people who can perform tasks over and over and over. They just practice them over and over and they're placed in that exact same situation again and again and they're good at them. That's a lot of things that occur within life. Uh, the separation is, can you do that but in an entirely new situation time and again, time and again, time and again, time and again. That's what golf is. You can practice as many eight irons as you want, hitting them on the range, but there comes a point in time where you got an eight iron that's on the course and you're off turf and the wind's blowing this way and you can't miss this way and the greens have been firm or they've been soft and you got to judge the bounce, all that kind of stuff. That's where a separation occurs and you truly start to blend what you know and what you don't. And 
for me, I realize this is a pretty enticing mixture. It's also a separation where you'll see true genius occur, in my opinion. The people who can equally weather the known and the unknown. I I bring up a, it's actually a chip from Tiger Woods. It was, I don't even know when it was. It was within the last five years. He was playing in the Accenture match play. It was a par three. He blasted it into this bush. And the ball was up against the foundation of this bush. And so the only thing he could do was try and hit it out left-handed with the toe of his wedge. So he's kneeling down. He's got his one leg splayed out to the right. He's on his opposite hand. He's hitting it with a club that you, I don't know when you would ever do that. You just, you, you're not going to sit there and practice this shot a million times is my point. It's just a situation that golf throws out there and you go, this is kind of cool. I've never played this in my life. Let's see what happens. Most times you'll just barf on yourself. I would barf on myself. Or I'd take an unplayable and, and bite the shot and try to get up and down for bogey. And Tiger Woods gets in there and it looks like he's somehow hit this chip a million times. I can't even stress how just hard and weird this shot looked. And he chips it down there with the toe left-handed. Just five feet, cans it for par, moves on. It was just another reminder that the people at the very top of their sports, whether that's athletes or teams, they can do both of these things equally. They will do repetitive things over and over. Tiger Woods has done his whole life. But you put them in these unknown situations and go, well, now you got to do this. And he goes, I'm not even going to blink because there's something inside me that truly separates me from other professional golfers and especially amateur golfers. But going back to the lure of golf, that's where I think the ennoble plays a really big role and something that I've really learned to embrace and kind of savor as my career has gone on. Just it's different every day, whether that's shots, whether that's rounds, you got different pins, you got different green conditions, you got different fairway conditions, you got different bunker conditions, you got wind, you got rain, you got pressure, you got playing partners, you got the different ways that your body can feel on any given shot or day. There's just, you go on and on and on and on and on. And it creates this incredible experience between everything I know and everything I don't. Some people ask me, you know, just they know that I golf every day. Like, doesn't it get boring at any point? I go, no, (laughs) it's actually the exact opposite. It's so stimulating because it takes things. I know that I like playing golf. It's that habit that I like keeps me in shape. uh, Just allows me to try and get better at something. Allows me to compete for money. I love all those things, but. It's also the most fulfilling experience in my life because it taps into the unknown, blends those both. It's the noble unknown, you know? So I mentioned that I've been reading a bunch right now. And I actually just finished up a novel that is incredible. And everybody should read it if they have time. It's called Brother, Sister, Mother, Explore. The debut novel written by a woman named Jamie Figueroa. It's really awesome. I would highly recommend it. But I want to read an excerpt from this book as we start to branch kind of beyond golf and into other sports. Because she wrote just, it's within the framework of this fictional novel, but she has a passage that's kind of about time that I want to read starting now. She studies her watch. So many ways to construct time. An hour equals what exactly? A minute opens even more possibilities. And a second, barely noticeable. And yet, so delicate, so durable. It all matters, but not in the way you think. 
There are some things not meant for your intellect, but rather meant for the wild you have forgotten inside you that senses all things. Time does not step, moment by moment, into the future. Rather, it twirls in an all-encompassing, multi-directional way, not unlike a nest of roots, which truly seems incomprehensible to those accustomed to noticing only the obvious. You do not have to understand this in order for it to be true. So I read that, and it sticks out in a lot of different ways, but just the way that I think and the way that I live in present day, I really, really, really gravitated towards those words. Just first and foremost, that wild inside you that senses things that you may have forgotten that you may not, cannot just uh, verbalize sometimes. And this idea of time working not as a linear pattern moving forward and forward, and that's just how it is, but as kind of this root system, you know, all-encompassing, multidirectional, past, present, future. A lot of the stuff that I really like to think about and try and feel within my own life. So as I was thinking about golf, strangely enough, I was playing the other day and I was having a conversation with one of my friends about another great passion of my life, a great love of my life that has diminished a little bit. It's still there and really solid, but we were talking about college football, which was my earliest introduction to just really, 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 truly loving uh, an activity or an inanimate object, just this thing that kind of taps into that wild inside you that you go, I don't really maybe even know, but there's something here and it's pretty cool. For me, it was when I was a kid and I'm watching Nebraska football and just the sport in general. And it was, it was all of those things. It was electric. It was stimulating. I just gravitated towards it. And as I look back, I'm nostalgic, but also like kind of sad in certain ways because that was college football at its best for what I crave. And it would never be that again. It would never be better. It's something I was not going to be aware of at the time when I'm eight years old and 12 years old. And I'm grinding out these Nebraska seasons going, this is the best. I didn't know that this would be the best it would get for the sport and for my team. Those two things are never going to be anywhere near what they were in the mid 90s and late 90s. For me. It's just kind of this thing that slowly has been a little bit lost over time as the sport itself has really transitioned and now heads into this unknowable future. But there's a part of me who goes, I know it's just not going to be as good as it once was. I just know that. I still love football. I'll watch it. I'll gamble on it. I'll still love all those things. Absolutely. But kind of the little bit more spiritual side of college football, that's been slowly leaking out of the sport as it turns into just this money-making behemoth that is first and foremost about revenue jumping to the schools that matter. So I look back on that and I go, yeah, it's a little sad. I just, I didn't realize it in the moment, but I guess it wouldn't have changed anything. But time works in strange ways and life experience works in really strange ways. And the things that you know and the things that you don't work in really strange ways because in the last decade, I go, you know what's weird? This, this idea of a root system and something's being lost and something's being replaced, just the circular nature of time. It's really interesting to think about for me in my own life the way that golf has grabbed a hold of me because it's never something in a million years I would have imagined. It's never something I ever would have bet upon. The sport I used to make fun of and go, this is for assholes. Actually, it is still for assholes, but now I am, unfortunately, I'm one of those people, although I try to be nice. But 
I would make fun of it. It's for rich people. It's for old people. Not really a sport. It's not like football or hockey or baseball or basketball, any of the traditional sports. Never in a million years would have guessed this would be the number one thing that I want to do in present day. You know, it's just something that's gained is something is lost. Swap this and swap this out. It's been revelatory because it's gotten me more open to the idea of I am a habitual person. I like the known, but I also probably should put myself in position sometimes to taste the unknown. And maybe I won't like it, but maybe there will be times when it will grab a hold of me and it will become the most important thing that I do in my life. That's a crazy thing to think of. But that's also how this whole 25-year journey has gone as I, with college football, with golf, all these kinds of things. So I bring up college football. Said at the top of the show, you know, we're, we're less than four weeks out. Very exciting time. We're also a month and change out from the NFL season. Two sports that, oh yes, get A-plus stamp of approval from me. Two sports that I think are very representative of this equation, known and unknown. How much do you want of each? And you, the listener of the show, you know that I'm always talking about the margins. I'm always talking about the way that the margins within a game and a season, they make the sport scintillating. Football, I think, taps into it the very best as far as what you know and what you don't. Because you know these teams are good, but then you get them on the same field together and you go, anything can happen because the bounce of the ball or the wrong coach's decision at the wrong time or a ref misses a call or you fumble at the wrong time. There's so much stuff that can go into who wins and who loses a football game. There's known, there's unknown. Too much of either throws off the calibration. You watch a game where Kansas City Chiefs win by 50 over the Raiders. You just go, this was dumb. I don't like this. We knew the Chiefs were better, but this was dumb. The unknown, the Chiefs are playing the Jaguars and they turn the ball over eight times and lose. You go, this is kind of stupid. I don't, you know, I want that balance. I want the, the calibration between these two entities because just enough of each equals perfection in my opinion. That's true for life experience. That's true for the sports that I consume. That is definitely true for football at its very best, collegiate or NFL. So now I've been consuming a bunch of media. I'm reading, I'm listening to podcasts. Some of it's sports related, some of it's not. Today's show is just kind of blend of those things. I was listening to a show yesterday, the athletic football show. And they had a conversation on there that like kind of echoed what I was thinking about at the time, which is this, everything that you're hearing on the show. The, the conversation was about arm strength, strangely enough. And quarterbacking, a lot of the stuff that I was talking about on last Friday's show. And they were talking specifically about Tua and Baker Mayfield. And they were talking about this clip that was being passed around on social media where Tua throws a bomb to Tyreek Kill and Dolphins fans are fired up. And they're like, this is kind of weird, you know, because most NFL quarterbacks can do this. The clean pocket, you crow hop, you bomb it downfield, it goes a far ways, receiver catches it in stride. It's not really a simulation of what you're going to get day in, day out, or play in, play out on in an actual competitive football game. You know, Tua or they mentioned Baker Mayfield. Those two, you put them in a clean pocket with talent at their disposal, and they can make a lot of good throws, you know, accurate, both of them, both of them have reasonable arm strength when they can set, when they can step, when they can fire. 
The separation starts to occur when you introduce all of the other things that football provides. I love the known. I love the scheming. I love getting a quarterback in a clean pocket and say, rip it into this hole. They do. Okay, sweet. That's awesome. But as I mentioned on Friday's show about quarterbacking, what makes the very best quarterback? It's what you can do with the known and what you can do with the unknown. That is where a big divide starts to occur on the second half of that equation. A lot of quarterbacks can look at their first read and if it's, if it's open and the pocket's clean, every NFL quarterback can do that. But your processing starts to play a bigger role when you're looking around and going, okay, my first read's taken, my second, okay, I gotta keep going. I gotta go to my third, gotta go to my fourth. That's an area that Justin Herbert has been incredible at early in his career. A trait that usually is associated with more time spent within the league. And then physically, what you can do with the unknown, that's a whole other category. Going back to the athletic football conversation, they're going, I mean, Tua's, not that he has a pop gun arm, but he can only throw from this specific position. He's got to be set. He's got to have a clean pocket. And the more you get him moving around and say, you got to throw a cross body, you got to do this over there. You see the lack of arm strength. You see the lack of arm talent. Big separator between him and let's say Josh Allen or my very favorite NFL player, Aaron Rodgers. Because from his first, his first touchdown pass, it was to Corey Hall, who played fullback for Green Bay. This is back in 2008. They play on Monday night against the Vikings. And his first touchdown pass, it was right at the goal line. In the grand scheme of throws that Aaron Rodgers has made in his career, it's just, it's so far down the list. But it's this corkscrew jump pass where he's trying to run kind of a play action style. And the defense is onto it and they send somebody into him. So he's got to jump midair and twist his body and throw it back, which he does to Corey Hall. Touchdown, announcers are going crazy. They're talking about, oh, that's like a Brett Favre. Another person who was really, he was more into the unknown than the known. We'll say that. But seeing that out of the gate, I was just like, oh, well, this dude can start to do some things that maybe other quarterback can't. And then really watching his career, you really start to understand, oh, there's a lot of plays that have happened that I've never, ever seen another quarterback make, ever. So he's on my favorite team, but also him tapping this deeply into the unknown. It was scintillating. That's another good way of putting it because I'm a Packers fan and I like watching the very best athletes. Think back to that Tiger Woods chip or Aaron Rodgers playing football or Roger Federer, who we're actually going to get into shortly. And you go, these are people who are at the very tippy top of people who have ever played the game. And one of the things that makes it so awe-inducing is you can watch them get put in a situation where you go, Aaron Rodgers, no one will ever throw that ball like this in practice. And yet somehow you've jumped up, you're throwing up 40 yards downfield, you're throwing it across, you're you're doing this and, and it looks like you have practiced this 3 million times. It looks like you just go, oh, no, no, no. This is the akin to Tua in a clean pocket throwing a 10 yard slant to a receiver who's wide open. Watching Aaron Rodgers, I think back to the line of Jamie Figueroa. And and as I read it, I was like, this is a perfect description of what my favorite athletes and favorite teams instill within me. The wild you have forgotten inside you that senses all things. That's a really incredible way of depicting love that you have for something. For me, it could be watching Aaron Rodgers play football. It could be playing golf. It could be a lot of people within my life. That's a pretty incredible way of depicting that. Just this thing that sometimes is dormant relative to the one thing that you suddenly, uh, maybe not suddenly, but 
could be sudden, it could be gradual, over time, develop a really deep abiding love for. That's a really incredible way of putting that. So love, I mean, you know that I talk about love a great amount on this show because that's kind of what this show is, just <laughs> an ode to my love for sports and the ways that it has brought a lot of meaning and passion into my life. Love is a, an interesting word because it's the most universal word ever. It's everything has been written about it. Uh, videos recorded about it. You name it. Everything ever has been explored about this to the point that it is the most universal word in the English language. Yet at the same time, it is also incredibly specific. This weird paradox of those four letters, L-O-V-E, right? We know it as a generalized term. When you say love, I understand. When I say love, you understand. But at the same time, it means something different for each individual on a very personal level. That's the wild inside you that only you can actually feel. That is pretty incredible. So I mentioned Roger Federer. And amongst all of this reading, I was reading a New York Times essay from the great author David Foster Wallace. This is from years ago. A friend of mine, she actually sent it to me because she's like, I don't like sports, but this is badass. You should read it. It's a longer essay. I would actually encourage everybody to read this about Roger Federer. It was in the New York Times. And David Foster Wallace, he grew up playing competitive tennis. He's got, you know, he's a big tennis guy. Roger Federer, favorite tennis player. And as I was reading this essay, I plucked a couple paragraphs because they resonated deeply with me as I just come to terms with a, how I think and feel about sports and life and love and all those kinds of things. And B, just this examination of watching really high-level athletes or watching really high-level teams play and how sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. So this is from David Foster Wallace. Beauty is not the goal of competitive sports, but high-level sports are a prime venue for the expression of human beauty. The relation is roughly that of courage to war. The human beauty we're talking about here is a beauty of a particular type. It might be called kinetic beauty. Its power and appeal are universal. It has nothing to do with sex or cultural norms. What it seems to have to do with, really, is human beings' reconciliation with the fact of having a body. Of course, in men's sports, no one ever talks about beauty or grace or the body. Men may profess their love of sports, but that love must always be cast and enacted in the symbology of war. Elimination versus advance, hierarchy of rank and standing, obsessive statistics, technical analysis, tribal and or nationalist fervor, uniforms, mass noise, banners, chest thumping, face painting, etc. For reasons that are not well understood, War's codes are safer for most of us than love's. A top athlete's beauty is next to impossible to describe directly or to evoke. Federer's forehand is a great liquid whip, his backhand a one-hander that he can drive flat, load with topspin, or slice. The slice with such snap that the ball turns shapes in the air and skids on the grass to maybe ankle height. His serve has world-class pace and a degree of placement and variety no one else comes close to. The service motion is lithe and uneccentric, distinctive on TV only in a certain ill-like all-body snap at the moment of impact. His anticipation and court sense are otherworldly, and his footwork is the best in the game. 
As a child, he was also a soccer prodigy. All this is true, and yet none of it really explains anything or evokes the experience of watching this man play, of witnessing firsthand the beauty and genius of his game. You more have to come at the ecstatic stuff obliquely to talk around it or, as Aquinas did with his own ineffable subject, to try to define it in terms of what it is not. End quote. So again, incredible writing. All of the writing that I'm referencing in today's show is incredible. Uh, the essay made me think a lot about a lot of different things. But at the core of it was this relationship between the known and the unknown. The way that those two things tie into passion and love. The two tenements of this very show. The things that I talk about at great length over and over and over and over. And how all of those things kind of thread and intertwine. And sometimes they get out of whack or out of balance. And I try to make sense of it. And other times I try to define it in terms of what it is not, as David Foster Wallace says. And other times I come to terms with, you know what? I can talk a lot about why this means so much and people will understand a lot of it, but there's a certain part of me inside that only I will truly understand. Universal yet specific. That's what love means to me. Really cool experience. I think that's why we are all searching after it in any possible way that we can. For me, you know, Right now, as we talk about time and I go past with college football, I go present with golf, I go the upcoming NFL season future, you know, things that truly inspire me, things that for whatever reason, the will or the wildness inside me kind of recognizes as you like this. These are reasons to live strangely enough, you know, uh, it's weird to think of love on those terms, but the deeper I dive, that's kind of what it can be, what it is, you know, the reason that I'm alive I look around, I go, well, you know, think back to Liza Mueller's words, just you kind of got to invent your own meaning. So pluck what you will and, and go with it for me, you know, finding things to love and finding things to be passionate about. That's a really good reason to just uh, enjoy what existence has to offer. You know, there's no shortage of things for me to explore and develop passion for. That's the known component. There's no shortage. Um, there's also no telling how this multi-directional root system of time is going to play a role. And that's the unknown. And the blend of those things can create really incredible experiences if I'm willing to put myself in position for that to happen. You know, sometimes it's organic and easy. Other times it's hard. But at its best, it manifests as, hey, you're a lifelong college football fan. Hey, you've been playing golf for coming up on a decade and it is the funnest and most integral part of your life currently in present day. That stuff's really incredible as I think about it in my own life. And as I expand it out and just hopefully you all are thinking uh, just kind of about how this stuff applies to your own life and just, oh yeah, I like the idea of putting myself in position for life's experience to happen to me. And sometimes it will bounce off me. Sometimes it will bed deep inside and become part of that wildness. So I want to finish with the only person I can finish with, the greatest wordsmith in the history of words, Liesl Mueller, who I have been reading a lot of lately. Um, <laughs> in terms of known and unknown, if I want to put that context over her, she's a great representation of how these two things blend together perfectly at their very best and create stuff that is so profound it like kind of hurts my head and my heart. But 
She's incredible with words. We know this. I don't actually know or comprehend how she is able to take 10 years worth of experience or 30 years and distill it into a brief stanza that when I read it, it taps into that part inside me that I'm just like, ooh, that means something in a way that I never have really thought about. But as soon as I saw the words, it registered. And now I'm thinking differently than I used to. She is incredible at blending those two components. You know, just the knowability of words and the unknown aspect of life that if distilled correctly can like really open up your mind. So this comes from her. It's from a poem called Still Life. And I'm just going to read an excerpt that I think is a really good capstone to today's show. Think of the time the words in a book you had not read for 30 years flew out and stung you. Fierce and sudden in the plenitude of their truth. Or of the black piano. A darkness that has no music until it is touched and you are stunned by your own desire. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Um, I'm hopefully going to record some more things within the next couple weeks that can get a little bit more philosophical uh, as we segue into football season. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, remember, go and subscribe to my newsletter. It's on chrisrawl.com. It's easy. It will come out on Wednesday of this week, every Wednesday of every week, actually, for the remainder of time until I die, or maybe just until this dies. But <laughs> the main point is go and sign up for it. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you all on Friday. Friday.